0: Hi, how are you doing? I'm standing at my living room window, looking out at absolutely torrential autumn rain. It's pattering on the panes and running along the centre of the little lane outside my cottage. There's a brisk wind too, and every so often it comes roaring down my chimney. My plan today had been to drive to the coast and try and bring you the sights and sounds of the great autumn bird migration. But while I'm perfectly happy to walk in wet weather, I've actually literally written a book about it. The same doesn't apply to sensitive recording equipment which doesn't like rain or wind. So today we're staying indoors. I'm going to make a cup of tea, and in a little while, I'm going to light my first fire of the year. My name's Melissa Harrison, and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. For almost six months now, in this strange year, I've been helping you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 26 the stubborn light of things. Seeing as we're staying indoors today, let me tell you a little bit about my cottage while I make a cup of tea. It was built in 1701 as a labourer's cottage and originally would have just been two rooms, one up, one down. Downstairs, the floor is of yellow Suffolk bricks laid in a traditional herringbone pattern. There's no foundations, so they're just laid on dirt and the floor is very wonky and wobbly and most of my furniture is propped up with little bits of folded up cardboard. There's a kitchen and bathroom at the back here, um, which are a Victorian edition. And there's a room at the side, a more modern extension, which is where I keep all my books. There's a huge inglenook fireplace with a wood burner in it and a second small burner in the kitchen too. There's no central heating and there's no mains drainage. There isn't even uh, rainwater drainage, which made last year's long, wet winter um, quite anxious for me. And a day like today when it rains all day, I do get a bit worried about where all the water's going. But that is something I'm hoping to have fixed in the next few weeks. On the big Bresma beam above the fireplace there are some faint apotropaic marks and these are really common in old buildings in this part of the country and elsewhere and they were protective against witchcraft. There isn't a daisy wheel which is what I was hoping for but there is a Marian mark which is an M scratched with compasses. The key to the huge uh, post and button front door, is the biggest key I think I've ever seen in my life. You couldn't fit it in a pocket. It's heavy and longer than my hand is long. The walls are bumpy. And a bit flaky in places. This cottage is cosy, especially when the fire's lit. But it's not fancy. And that's alright. You can smarten up old cottages like this, but I think you lose something. What I like about it is that the newer bits aren't pretending to be old. The old bit is old. The Victorian bit is Victorian. And the modern side extension is modern. I like the honesty of that. I spend a lot of time imagining the people that used to live here. Especially when it was just two rooms when all the cooking would have been done over the fire the open fire downstairs and a family would have slept in one room upstairs I hope they were warm enough particularly on days like today oh that's a really good cup of tea so strange to think that 240 years ago today, a parson naturalist in Hampshire was also lighting his first fire of the winter. Here's Gilbert White's diary entries for today, September the 28th.
1: September the 28th, 1768. Ringoozles are seen again in their return to the north. September the 28th, 1774. All things in a drowning condition. September the 28th, 1780. The china hollyhocks in my strong soil grow too tall and are just beginning to blow. Began to light fires in the parlor. September the 28th, 1781. Dug up potatoes and carrots. September the 28th, 1785, several ringozles on Knorr Hill. Timothy the tortoise spends all summer in the quarters of the kitchen garden among the asparagus, etc. But as soon as the first frosty mornings begin, he comes forth to the laurel hedge, by the side of which he spends the day, and retires under it at night, till urged by the increasing cold he buries himself in November amidst the laurel hedge. September the 28th, 1791. Linnets congregate in great flocks. This sweet autumnal weather has lasted three weeks from September the 8th.
0: Well, the rain is still lashing down outside. And my neighbour's bins have blown over. I've retreated to the sofa... I've got under a slightly shabby old blanket and I've put on a pair of owl mittens that were knitted for me by JC George, who was a guest in an earlier episode. When this podcast started back in the first week of April, I told you about the Chiff Chaff, which is usually the first of our uh, spring migrant birds that we hear singing each year. We're now on to the second great movement of birds in the year, and right now there are billions of birds on the move. Our summer visitors—swifts and swallows, the hobby, house martins, the flycatchers, the chiffchaffs, the warblers—they've all pretty much left or are leaving. They came here to breed and to take advantage of insect numbers. And now they're heading back south into the warm. Now, though, we have a new set of birds arriving from the north and west to overwinter here. And particularly there are um, lots of fruit-eating birds that will come here to enjoy the hips and haws and berries and apples and fruit in our hedgerows and lots and lots of ducks and geese. About half of the birds that we have here migrate. In the far north, nearly all of them do um, to escape the very cold winters. And in tropical areas, not many birds do. They don't really need to. But as well as these great seasonal migrations, there are other kinds of migration too. There's um, altitudinal where birds move from higher ground to lower ground, so things like meadow pipits and um, skylarks. There are partial migrants, so lots of our familiar birds here, like blackbirds and starlings. Um, often there's a, a population that will arrive here um, from places like Scandinavia in the winter too, to join them. And there are passage migrants, so um, birds that are on their way somewhere else but will stop off here and you know, rest and refuel What I'd really hoped to do today was to find some pink-footed geese, which are a real seasonal marker when they arrive. And they are starting to arrive, I'm seeing from friends on the coast. They were called the Heaven Hounds uh, by the author B.B. Dennis Watkins-Pitchford, who um, I have an especial interest in. He was the author of The Little Grey Men and The Little Grey Men Go Down the Bright Stream, which... Um, The first one won him the Carnegie Medal in 1942, and I loved those books growing up. I haven't been able to go and record The Heaven Hounds for you, but due to the magic of Peter Rogers and his production, you can hear the sound of them now. If you want to plug in to this exciting time in the Birdwatcher's year you can go to the British Trust for Ornithology website at bto.org and they have things like the average arrival and departure dates and the latest developments and any rarities and appeals for, for help with their records as well. What birdwatchers are really looking out for at this time of year, what they really want is a wind coming from the east. Today the wind direction's all wrong, even if it hadn't been pouring with rain, it's, it's not a good day to be out birding. But the autumn migration is something that anyone can feel part of if you want to. Even when I lived in the centre of London, one of the things I loved to do in autumn was listen out for red wings migrating overnight. They'd often come in after dark, and when I was taking Scout out on her evening walk, I'd listen for them, very, very high, high-pitched peeping calls overhead. They were contact calls. As they flew in the dark, they were just saying to each other, are you still there? Are you still there? And here's my Times Nature Notebook, which was written from those days when I lived in London, from those streets, back in September 2014. Two-thirds of London's landscape is made up of gardens, parks, woods and water making it one of the greenest major cities in Europe. It's a richly diverse wildlife habitat, with two national and 100 local nature reserves, 36 sites of special scientific interest, more than 1,200 sites of importance for nature conservation, and several nationally important biodiversity action plan areas, including acid and chalk grassland, grazing marsh, heathlands and reed beds. It may seem surprising, but many parts of the capital are more wildlife-friendly than traditional farmland, where non-organic agriculture can create monocultures in which little else thrives. One of London's most important contributions to biodiversity is its three million gardens, whose mixed borders, bird baths, compost heaps, lawns and hedges echo the ecotones that are, all over the world, so rich in life those areas between one type of habitat and the next, like the edges of woodlands and the margins of streams. Over 300 species of bird have been recorded in the capital, and to them, gardens aren't the little kingdoms we experience them as, but long strips of green lying parallel to roads, with regular, useful fences to perch on and to act as windbreaks, plenty of cover for roosting and nesting, and lots of food. Not just bird feeders, but seeds shed by the great assortment of plants we cultivate and the caterpillars, greenfly and other invertebrates attracted by what we grow. So to the city's busy patchwork habitat now comes autumn, just as it does to the fields and farms, slowing the lawn's growth, stripping the trees and preparing plants for winter's long sleep. Blackbirds pick through the leaves rapidly accumulating on tired, dry lawns or cock their heads to listen for worms in the London clay, while red admirals and small tortoiseshell butterflies are beginning to seek out sheds and garages to winter in. On our side of the road, it is the north-facing back gardens that succumb to autumn first. The fronts of the houses get the sun and many are still bright with late-season colour. While it may be far less pretty than the bought-in bedding plants that decorate our porch, the shaggy old ivy covering our shady back fence will feed late bees and shelter many birds through the coming colder nights. One thing I've always done in every garden I've ever had is feed the birds not least because it gives me an enormous amount of pleasure to watch them. But data from the Big Garden Bird Watch and other sources is starting to show that it's having a a marked positive effect on several species, so it's really worth doing. I haven't filled up my feeder today. I bring it in overnight because we do have rats here and um, it hangs on the gutter outside my back door and one evening I could hear a shuffling sound on the roof and I switched on my kitchen light to see the bird feeder being inched along the gutter by a very enterprising rodent. So it comes in now and I put it back out in the morning. So that's what we're going to do now. When I first moved to Suffolk um I had to go and find the local ironmonger because I had to buy all sorts of things I didn't need before like an axe and I asked him to sell me a bird food scoop and he had them in stock it was one of these real old traditional ironmongers with a chap in a brown apron and he had them in stock but he refused to sell one to me he said I couldn't sleep at night uh, he said all you need to do is get a plastic milk bottle screw the lid on and cut the bottom off he was absolutely right so that's what I used. out there. Oh dear. Poor birds. Oh, it's blowing absolute hooly. Still, I'm lucky, the weather isn't nearly as severe as it can get in places like Scotland. And uh, as my guest this week knows very well, she's Annie O'Gara-Worsley, and she contributed to all of the Four Seasons anthologies that I edited um, in support of the Wildlife Trusts. She's also written for the beautiful Elementum Journal. She's joining us from Westeros in the Northwest Highlands, and it's the setting for a book she's written that's due out next year from HarperCollins.
2: I live in North West Scotland on a crop which is a small holding in a small valley surrounded by hundreds of square miles of mountainous country. It's ground, expansive, big country. The mountain ranges of Westeros are made of billion-year-old rock and they're largely empty of trees and people. Most folk live by the coast in small fishing villages or in crofting communities like mine because the hills and glens were cleared of people, most recently to make way for deer. Our valley is a busy life-filled place with a complex variety of habitats, from pay meadows to peat bogs and small patches of woodland. The layout of the Crofts overlies much older settlements, and there are remnants of houses and walls and a large embankment that must once have enclosed a village. There's no date to it, the archaeologists haven't worked that out yet, but it certainly looks very old. There are trails too that have no relationship to Croft boundaries, and one special one that leads to the shore, and it's my favourite route to go to the sea. And the trail is crisscrossed by otter trails and there are spring mounds literally every 50 to 100 meters so the otter population here must be very big and healthy there's one especially large mound it's about one and a half meters in diameter and almost a meter in height and it sits right next to a remnant of the very old embankment and next to our river it's green just now against the autumn colors of surrounding vegetation so it looks like a beacon bright and cheerful from this special spot i can see sky the isle of sky and the outer islands the outer hebrides and throughout the year it's possible to mark the position of the sunset from solstice to solstice right along the chain of islands it's also possible from this spot to see the approaching weather different cloud types different wind speed will tell me what weather is coming soon the autumn storms will come rolling in and I like to think of all the generations of people and daughters, who have paused or sit like I do and watch the weather and wonder what the winds will bring.
0: When I was a child, we always went on holiday to Dartmoor. It was where my mother's parents lived since they came here from India in 1947. And we would spend two weeks um, doing a lot of walking and going to the the beaches on the south coast. And because Dartmoor... um, is an upland between two sea coasts it gets a lot of orographic rainfall which occurs when moisture-laden air is forced up over high ground so we did a lot of walking in wet weather and i'd love to paint a picture for you here of um can do uncomplaining doughty children marching along but that's not really what it was like we whinged and complained and our 70s Anoraks let in water, and our flares got soggy. And we mostly said things like, Are we nearly there yet? and I'm cold, I want to go home. (laughs) But the thing is, as all parents know, kids don't always like the things that are good for them. And the things that are good for them often don't reveal themselves until much later in life. And I'm so glad now that we spent all that time. In bad weather, because it taught me that discomfort doesn 't kill you, it taught me that you can be wet and you can be cold, and that can go on for a little while, and then it 's all right again i 'm not advocating you know <laughs> deliberate cruelty to children by any means. We were there for a purpose we were there to see them all and often to walk around and find things like stone circles that Dad wanted to see because he was very interested in history. And we were there to learn what it is to connect to a, a beautiful, wild place. And those lessons have stood me in such good stead. They taught me resilience. And I'm not sure I would have learned that otherwise. What I didn't work out until a little bit later in life, in fact quite recently, is that... Difficult feelings can be very similar to the weather in that you can just let them come in and sit a while and then let them go again and that it's all right, that they're survivable. I think um, particularly anger was a really, really hard one for me to recognise until really recently I just pushed it down because it frightened me and I didn't know what to do with it and I didn't understand... That, you, that there was a difference between feeling angry and behaving angrily. And so I was frightened of what the effects might be. And now I understand that you can feel angry but not do anything harmful. You can just notice the feeling and express it to other people and use it as a clue to understand what you need. And the same with sadness, and guilt, and other difficult feelings. I'm not talking about um, actual mental illness or depression, but the ordinary difficult feelings that we all have. None of them are bad. They're not. There's no such thing as a bad feeling. They're information and they're useful, and they come and they go and Sometimes I'm just really sad, and I'll be sad for a few days, and then it will pass, and that's all right. What I am at the moment, though, is cold, and I think it's time to light the fire. i trying to think when I last lit a fire, I guess it was end of February, beginning of March. In the winter months, a cottage like mine with no central heating becomes completely dominated by the fire and what time you light it each day. And then when you don't need fires anymore, as the weather warms up, you really think you'll miss it. It's this living thing that's in your room and you're so used to it. Then, of course, what replaces it is the warm weather. And things like my back door um, is a stable door and you can hook the top half open And then that becomes the focus of the house, the sunshine and the birds on the feeders and the garden. cleaned the ash logs in over the top of the kindling so as it starts to burn they'll hopefully catch. Gosh it's windy, smoke's being blown back down the chimney. Hopefully it'll start to draw properly soon. What a lovely thing, first fire of the winter. This week's poem is A Landscape by Rebecca Tomash. She's a poet and essayist, and she's an editor and a critic. I first came across her when her collection, Witch, was recommended to me by a bookseller. Um, One of the strands in my last novel, All Among the Barley, was witchcraft. And I find it really interesting when something becomes very current in the cultural moment. And I've noticed an upsurge of interest in witchcraft. I find that fascinating. Her collection is just unlike anything I've read before. It's, It's frightening and tender and rude in the best way. And... It's got such a strong voice. I've been recommending it left, right and centre. She's got a new essay collection called Strangers, Essays on the Human and Non-Human, which comes out next month, which I can also highly recommend. And I hope you enjoy a landscape. I hope also for better weather for the final episode of the series, which comes out next week.
3: A Landscape You will see green fields again. The living swallow fell on hot snow. Ossip Mandelstam One When I walked into the field in winter, things were bad. Birds cannot turn back the void. Grasses cannot turn back the void. Nor should they have to. But still, in the hushing snow, i followed branches sucking on their black teeth crows with elizabethan aspect glamorous and terse cawing at the smudgy opal light giving me back my lack of understanding my breath my free space of air two late last night a boy shouted at me with his red wine mouth Loving Nature is saying you'll let people die. I mean, no one said anything about loving it or said what it is at all. The room is dark and the snow falls in drifts. Ghosts watch us through the windows, their faint expressions unreadable, their eyes cold marbles in seawater. What thought do I insert, what knowledge? The temples are gone and I'm glad, taking my apple, biting it with hard cheese. Still, under the open air, I can't help my worship. Inside the cluster of trees, snow making strange muffled echoes, eating my song. My prayers snip at the ice, go into it, wanting to get down and praise wanting to be mute and ugly. Maybe there are gods inside the crispy, ice-shagged leaves. Maybe what I see when the air splinters the violet frost, the dark grey doves, is what I think it is, which is a mouth hanging open, spilling light, too tender to fork through too tender, too strange to break into bloodied separation. The green crack under the ice does not have to explain itself, its hot, bright heart blooming. It is not innocent, it is not raw, it is not yours, whatever you may want from it, it is a black sea that you part with closed eyes.